If you have a Bible, we are in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we're going to deal with the first 13 verses of this uh, chapter. There's a phrase that I heard um, or have heard this week about a thousand times. My bet is that you've heard it too. It is the phrase, the peaceful transition of power. Anybody heard that one? I heard it a couple of times this week. I don't know how uh, peaceful it has been, but I know this, that we are dealing with a transition of power today in our first 13 verses of chapter 2 that's anything but peaceful because God shows up in chapter 2 and he radically transforms his people from here on out. We're talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. As Jesus promised, as we see witnessed here in this narrative, okay, I don't know how this would fall on your list of important events in human history, but this has got to be in everyone, every Christian's top something, right? This is a big deal. The day of Pentecost is here. The culmination of 4,000 years of history, the, the birthday of the church. We, we've got the culmination of all that Jesus said and did and promised kind of showing up here on this day of Pentecost. If it isn't the greatest day, it's got to be one of them. The, the day and the records record for us the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in a way that is nowhere else described in the Scripture. Now, we see power in the Scripture, clearly. There's miraculous that happens all over the text. But here, unlike the Old Testament and unlike the gospel narratives, we see a power that transforms us, <laughs> average people, crippled at best. The power of God has come. So let's just say it's a really, really special day and it's really important, okay, what we're about to discover. I don't know how many of you were here last week, but uh, we looked at the preceding 15 verses, the end of chapter 1. And I, I think it's really important that you see this, that that description in those 15 verses is a description of the church before this day, this special day we're talking about called Pentecost. And in that description, we looked at it as we broke it down. We saw a church that was united with each other, devoted to prayer, committed to obeying the word of God and submitting to his sovereignty. All of it described in that picture. And I, I told you then that if, if someone could dry, draw up a narrative of our church and simply said, using those four things to describe us, I'd take it. I don't need any more. Like we're, you, we're in love with each other. We're devoted to each other. We're devoted to prayer and we're committed to obeying the word and we trust in a sovereign God. That's a pretty good church description, is it not? And yet it all happens before Pentecost all before the power and the coming of the Holy Spirit. I left you with a question, kind of a teaser. If the description of the church before Pentecost exemplifies those things, then why Pentecost? What, what would be the purpose? What's the purpose of this filling or this indwelling of the Spirit that is mentioned here in, in chapter 2? Well, you're going to have to come back next week. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you, but you'll have to wait a little while because I think there's some preliminary work that we need to do. Let me just tell you what we're going to do today. I think it's important for us to spend just a few minutes talking about the person of the Holy Spirit because I think there's some confusion about who he is. And we're about to meet him in all of his glory here in, in this particular narrative. 
Um, we're going to look at that, the work of the Spirit, the person of the Spirit. We're going to look at what happened in this particular narrative to the disciples at Pentecost. So we'll see the story as it, as it breaks down. We're also going to look at what happened in these disciples, like something happened to them, not just with them. And then something happened through them. There are other people affected by what's happened in them. And so that narrative kind of plays out for us in this story. And then I'm going to answer why Pentecost, okay? That's the trip, so you're going to have to hang in there with me, all right? Okay, before we dig in, uh, let's clarify a little bit on the Holy Spirit. I read a, a survey, this is probably many years ago now, by the Barna Group who suggested, they did survey of Americans um, answering this question, like, what is the Holy Spirit? And they, 70% said the Holy Spirit was nothing more than the presence of God's power, kind of like, like uh, energy, but not a living entity. I don't know how true that is, and I don't know what you think of the Holy Spirit, but I think there's some, there's some confusion about who he is. And, and one, it could be because he's kind of hard to understand. He's mysterious. That's, that's, that's who God is in, his, in this particular person of the Spirit. But also, I think probably the church doesn't talk about him enough. I mean, we don't do, we don't do series on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit enough for us to have a, a well-thought-out understanding of him. But some people think the Holy Spirit is nothing more than just a vibe. He's just energy. He's a mojo. That's what he is, right? Um, he's the force, if you're a Star Warser, okay? I just brought you close. That's an illustration. <laughs> you're with me now. I, re I read from time to time A.W. Tozer. And of, of the people that I read, I cannot really like him for, for several reasons. One is um, he's not a writer. He's a pastor who happens to write. And I kind of like that, to be honest with you. He's actually worried about sheep, not just saying something. So I like that. He's also only been educated up to the eighth grade, and everything he writes was longhand. So I kind of like that, that everything you see in its power had to be driven by some experience with the Holy Spirit. I look at that and go, wow, he knew something. He prays, he, he believes something, and I'm really won over by that. So this is a quote by Tozer, not to overplay it, but here's what he says about the Holy Spirit, specifically dealing with the confusion about him. He says, the Holy Spirit is a person. He's not enthusiasm. He's not courage. He's not energy. He's not the personification of all good qualities, like Jack Frost is the personification of cold weather. Actually, the Holy Spirit is not the personification of anything. He's one being and not another. He has a will and intelligence. He has hearing and he has knowledge and sympathy and ability to, to love and to see and to think. He can hear and speak and desire and grieve and rejoice. He's a person. He's not just making that up. He is basically telling you what the scriptures say of him. So, I don't have time, and this is not going to be an exhaustive trip. I just want to overwhelm, just blast on you particular parts of the Holy Spirit so that we use that picture when it comes to all the work that he's about to show us in chapter 2, okay? So, first of all, he's distinct from the Father and Son. He is a person. Uh, we were in Mark for a year, two years ago. Mark begins with this picture of the Trinity. We have Jesus the Son in the water being baptized, the, the Spirit descending like a dove, and the Father in heaven whose voice says, this is my Son who is well pleased. Picture, Trinity. 
the end of the sermon that we're about to get into in chapter 2, and Peter lays out for these people who are totally overwhelmed with what just happened with that group of ragtag people. He lays out for us this wonderful collection of the Trinity where he says that Jesus, this ascended Lord whom you killed, is now ascended and exalted with the Father, and the Holy Spirit now has been is coming, and they receive him with power. You have the depiction over and over again. That's just a sampling of, of the distinctness of the Spirit. The Scripture tells us that he has personality. He has intellect. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Spirit searches all things and knows the thoughts of the Father. He has intellect. The text tells us that he has emotion, that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. He actually feels. He's not just a vibe. He has feelings. All throughout the scriptures, it says that he shares every attribute with, with God. He is God. He's eternal. He's holy. He's truth. He is powerful. He's omnipresent. He is God. Every one of those attributed to the Spirit. The scriptures describe for us what the Spirit does, that he gives life to believers. He opens our eyes. Jesus said this, John 3, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of the Say that with confidence, because you cannot be saved without the Spirit regenerating your heart. That's it. That's how any lost person comes to faith, is the regeneration of the Spirit. He gives spiritual life. He's a source of truth and understanding to believers. John 16, the Spirit of truth. He will guide you into all truth, the text says. So he teaches. He is a source of power, which we're going to discover here and following in the book of Acts over and over again. It makes it clear. He is comfort. He is conviction. He is wisdom, understanding, discernment, guidance, assurance, worship, and praise for his people. He empowers that in us. That's what he does. In Romans chapter 8, it says he he intercedes for our prayers. He takes my mess. He takes what I would have prayed if I knew more about my God, and he, he kind of interprets it to the Father and says, this is what he means. I love that. I need that. The Scripture tells us that he's a source of change. We go to Galatians 5 when Paul talks about the fruit, singular fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, right? Faithful self-control. We see that, that the, the Spirit of God brings about the shape of God in the person of God. We become different people. That's the work of the Spirit. Now, obviously, we just spent five minutes talking about the Spirit, and from cover to cover, the Spirit shows up. From Genesis and creation all the way to the end. We, we cannot do, nor this is, is this a time for us to do a series on the doctrine of the Trinity, but I wanted to make certain that we understood that the Holy Spirit isn't a vibe. He's a person. The person of the Trinity shows up in the church in chapter two of eight, or chapter two of Acts, and the church has never been the same since. That's a big deal. It's a powerful deal. So I just want that to ring in your ears as we begin reading in chapter two, verse one. We'll unpack this day called Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Here's the background on this day. It's called Pentecost because it takes place 50 days after Passover. Penta is Greek for 50. That's why it's called Pentecost. The Jews referred to it as the Feast of Weeks because it came seven weeks after Passover, week of weeks. That's how they would see it. It was also referred to the feast of, first, feast of first fruits because it came at the end of their wheat harvest and they would bring a tithe of wheat for this particular harvest. And then there was also um, 
an explanation of, of the weather. It would be around June if it was those weeks after Passover, and it was great weather and well attended, okay? It was also considered by the Jews as the anniversary of the giving of the law to Moses at Mount Sinai. So this was a big day, and it explains a couple of things. One is it explains the huge crowds from everywhere. So when the text says devout Jews from all over the planet showed up in Jerusalem, it's a big day. They're celebrating lots of things. And so it explains sort of the wisdom of God to break out in a crowd. (laughs) I love that. He was going to show off to the world at this moment. It's also interesting to me, at least to make a a side note, if it represents the anniversary of the law written on stone, then we know what the Spirit of God does, don't we? He takes the law and writes it on men's hearts. And here the Spirit comes in power to the church. It's interesting to me. So, verse 2 through 4, let's look at what happened to them. And suddenly... The text says, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And dividing tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterances. The text tells us the coming of the Spirit was accompanied by three particular signs, sound, sight, and power. That's how it's described here in order in this particular passage. First, the sound. It just says the sound of rushing wind. It wasn't blowing. It says sound. I grew up in the panhandle of Texas. Anybody been there? Anybody ever lived there? Tornado Alley, okay? It got so familiar with me that when the sirens would blow, you wouldn't duck. It just became part of life. And I've never actually been in a tornado, but I've heard them, okay? So I'm just picturing this group of believers, 120 in all, near the upper room, the sound like a rushing wind, like a violent tornado was happening. And the text makes it pretty clear that it was loud because in verse 6 it says, the multitudes heard it and came running. What's going on? It's a big deal, okay? Verse 2 it says, and suddenly. (laughs) I got to make a point about this word suddenly. Suddenly is how God works, church. That's what he does. He is not obligated to our timing. He does what he wants to do when he wants to do it. They're his terms, not our terms. You can't rub your spiritual rabbit's foot and conjure God to anything. He does what he does. Uh, John Piper said it this way. I think it's better than I could say it. He says, God loves us. He does. He serves us and he cares for us, but he, he keeps his own hours. That help? He's God. Suddenly, like he always does. And wind here specifically is symbolic of the life the Holy Spirit gives God's people. Life has come. That's what's being symbolized by this violent wind. Both in Hebrew and Greek, the word for spirit and wind are the same. For example, in Genesis, the beginning of Genesis, when when the writer is laying out for us the description of creation, it says that the Spirit of God blew across the waters. Life. When, when the text talks about Adam and Eve, it says that God breathed wind into Adam's nostrils and he became a living being. You get into the Gospels when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about being born again, that weird concept like what do I have to do? He jumps right from that thing to another confusing statement sort of if you don't understand context. And he says you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants. So it is everyone who's born of the Spirit. The Spirit of God will change you. Because he blows where he wants. And what the Spirit does is bring life. 
That's the symbolism of what's happening here in this particular narrative, the sound of rushing wind. Notice something else that, they, that happened here. They saw something. It is the sight of fire. It simply says, divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. I have no idea, neither does anybody else know what this means. You can pick up any commentary, you only speculate. All I know is it looked like something, because that's what he says. It looked like fire. So let's, let's just go with that, okay? It looked like that to, to uh, the writer here. And that makes sense, right? If, if, if wind is symbolic of, of God and life, then fire is symbolic of his presence. In the Old Testament, you have Moses at the burning bush, this relationship. God is getting close. When the people of God have been freed from Egypt and slavery and they're wandering through the desert to their promised land, at night, how are they led? Fire. This obscure passage when Abraham is in this conversation with God and they're making a covenant, as it were, and God says to Abraham something really weird, doesn't fit in our culture, but he says, I want you to take these animals and I want you to cut them in two and separate the bloody pieces. Now, in that culture, that was like a contract. You, you and I, if we were making a deal, we would cut an animal in two and pass between the pieces, signifying something by illustration. Let it be done to me what was done to this animal if I don't keep my end of the deal. And if you're reading this story, you're all ready for this. You're going, okay, God and Adam are going to sign the contract. They're going to walk between the pieces. But if you've read this story, God causes a deep sleep to fall over Abraham, doesn't he? And what passes between the pieces? Fire. God came close. He came close. Every other religion in the world thinks like that. Like if it's God and it's me. God does his part, I do my part. He offers a solution and I try really hard. He creates this system and I'll climb the ladder and we'll join arm in arm and we'll make the deal and that's my future. Only biblical Christianity says, no, you're out cold. You're dead. You got no shot, but I'll keep the promise because I'm coming close. There is a huge chasm of separation between us. Your sin and my holiness, nothing, nothing you could ever do could get to me. Let me take care of it. That's, that's the symbolism of fire. The fire, this, this wind, this violent wind was heard. Life is coming. Fire, the presence, the closeness of, of God. Now look at the third thing, verses five through 11. Another sign, power. We know it in this text is the power of languages, but let's look at it. And now that we're dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound, the multitude came together and they were be bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, aren't not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. I'm out of breath. All the point is, is that everybody's here. It's a big party. The world has shown up in Jerusalem for this festival. And they begin to speak in languages they, they don't know. A couple things are, are pretty obvious beyond just the fact that these languages are coming out, but these are simple men. 
you, you should know that Galileans was a way to say country bumpkin, okay? These are not from Stanford, these guys, okay? They're plumbers and fishermen and carpenters. They're average Joe. There is no explanation for what's going on based on their education. It was a way for the writer to say, this can't happen unless God's doing it. That's what he's saying. These are uneducated men, simple men. Something radical is taking place, an undeniable miracle. And most of the people there witnessed it said, got to be a miracle, although some said, nah, they're just drunk, okay? We know that from the text. But these miracles are proof that God is doing something, that God is here. Now, that's the narrative. That's simply the story of what happened to them. But now look at what happened in them, verse 11, second half of verse 11. Um. Verse 11, and we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. I want to make sure you understand what's going on here. Probably better said what's not going on here. This isn't a prayer meeting. It is not an organized evangelism exercise. It is not a sermon well-crafted. This is organic it is simply the church being overwhelmed with its God. That's what's happening here. We're so good at systems, church. We're so good to take something like this and say, how do we, how could that, let's plan. Here, you take this, this track and you go down on mill and you tell them about this and suddenly we have what? I don't know what we have. I'm not putting that down. I'm just saying that's not what's happening here. Okay? We, we've got a word to describe what's happening here. Praise is happening here. They're telling of the mighty works of God. God had changed them and praise is spilling out. The apostle Paul in describing what the filling of the spirit does to the people of God says it this way. Be filled with the spirit, addressing each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I may be speculating a bit here, but I believe it's pretty close. These believers were touched by the love of God and his spirit and they weren't the same anymore. Not even close. Totally different. So here's the scene. Just picture the scene. I don't think this is like exaggerating. They are praising God and they are happy. Like joy. Not, not, not connected to circumstances, but joy unconnected from circumstances. They are singing songs and they're loving each other and they're being thankful. Here's my point. Verse 13, some who were listening to this accuse them of being drunk. They're not accusing them of being drunk because they're speaking in other tongues. I think they're accusing them of being drunk because they're too happy. Because if you're hearing an intelligible language explain real events, you don't think drunk. But if you're crazy passionate in love with people, caring for others, singing songs and hymns, and joy unspeakable and full of glory, what does the world do with that? They're high. <laughs> right? They don't know what to do with that. So, I, confession, I wrote three versions of this sermon. And here's my confession and here's why. Because I wrote the first two for me. I was really convicted. So I tore those up because they were really harsh. <laughs> so these are the gentler versions, okay? I've got a question. 
when is the last time someone accused you of being on something because you were too in love with Jesus? When, when is the last time anybody in the world looked at your life and said, Poof, something's crazy about them? This is just an observation. Please don't be hurt by it. But some of you need to tell your face that Jesus lives and he loves you. Because they need to look at you and see some version of difference. Not pretending. Like something has happened in here that affects out here. They need to look at us and go, man, they're cranky people. They complain all the time. They have the same values I do. If that's what they see, we're losing. But if they see joy and they hear praise, and they see love, what will they say? Okay, we've seen what happened to them, we've seen what happened in them, now look at what happened through them. Back again to 11 through 13, second half of 11, we hear them telling our, in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said they are all filled with new wine. Notice three things that are happening here. The multitude heard about the mighty works of God. Again, I'm just kind of putting myself in that scene. If the disciples, if the 120, if all those gathered, if the mother of Jesus, the brothers of Jesus, if the wicked women in Luke 7, if they were all there talking about the mighty works of God, I can hear it something like this. Like the disciples going, do you remember when he found us? We were casting nets, and he said, hey, come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And do you remember that first town we stopped, and there was a demon-possessed man there, and he said, come out, and the guy was made right again. And do you remember when that blind man, who'd been blind his whole life, couldn't see, when he spit into the dirt and rubbed it on his eyes, and he could see, and the whole city was amazed? you remember that? I could just hear all these stories coming up again, talking about the mighty works of God done in their presence, and how he had touched their lives, and how they were different, the amazing, the amazing Jesus. I can just picture this like happening organically. Like if we experienced it. And it says here in the text that they were all amazed. The word amazed means to put out of place, to be pushed out of your senses. We have a phrase in our own culture that we use. It, it is simply, it blew their minds. That's what it means. No file for it can't explain it, doesn't happen anywhere else, never seen it before. Those people are showing me something so different. I'm amazed, blows my mind. And it says here, the multitudes reacted. Two reactions, it states, one, they, some ask great questions. It's the greatest question I think you could ever have when you face Jesus, what does it mean? What does this mean? Others said, no, I don't want to think about what it means, they're drunk. That'll, that'll help me for now. I don't have to deal with it. Let me ask you this question. What do you think an unbeliever hears when they encounter us? What do they th do they hear us complain about the world, about politics, about our life, about our husband, about our wife, our kids? Our job. What do they hear? Are they hearing the praises of God or something totally different? How do they react to us? Uh, I am really convicted by this, but don't you think, don't you think that the, our passion for Jesus has to be greater by far than our passion for anything else? 
don't you think that, that our love for him and for each other should be greater than our love for our own comfort? You didn't say amen to that one. It's what's different. I, I really pray this way. I don't want someone who doesn't know Jesus to encounter any of us without asking this question. What does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean that you keep serving? What does it mean that you keep giving? What does it mean that you keep loving? What does it mean? What does it mean that you confess Jesus? I'm, I don't see it in my world. I see it in your world. So tell me, what does it mean? What would be the point of us living out this faith we say is so certain that we describe it in terms like amazing grace, but we live so average and so normal and so predictable that no one would ask, what does it mean? What would be the point? Well, that's the story. 13 verses, small narrative, 2,000 years ago, the Spirit came, broke out in the early church. Now, let me keep my promise of why he broke out. The answer to the question, why? Why the indwelling of the Spirit? Why Pentecost? Why did God's Spirit indwell these believers this day? And why does he indwell every believer at their conversion since that day? Why does he indwell you? That's the question I want to answer. Why were they filled with the Holy Spirit? I need you to listen, okay? Because if you don't listen, you're going to walk out of here thinking I said something I didn't say, okay? They were filled with the Holy Spirit, not for their salvation. I need you to get this. Don't panic, okay? I am not saying that they or we don't need the Holy Spirit. Nobody is converted without the move of the Holy Spirit on the dead heart of a sinner. That's true. No one's eyes are open. No heart is transformed. No one has faith, a part of the Spirit coming to us and moving in us. Always has been true, by the way. It's always true. And here's why. Because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Interpretation, the brokenness in man's perception is so profound that without an act of the Spirit of God to open the eyes of his heart, he will never perceive his need and never see Jesus as his answer. And every person who loves Christ has experienced that truth. That's the text. The Holy Spirit of God works a miracle in every human heart to be able to believe in God. And by the way, that has always been true. From the very beginning to the very end. Every Old Testament saint you have in your mind as a champion, everyone named in the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews 11 had to look forward to the promise of a Messiah. By faith, they were changed. The Spirit changed them. They believed in the promise to come. We look back at the promise that's happened, and the Spirit changed us too. So here's what I'm not saying. No one can be saved apart from the Spirit's work, okay? You understand? We need the Spirit's work in our life. But here's what you have in this particular narrative. You have 15 verses at the end of chapter 1 where they are united to each other and they're praying with each other and they're re believing the word together and they're, they're trusting in the sovereignty of God. Great depictions of this spirit change behavior. Then 10 days later, the text tells us the promise showed up, the power of God. Look at verse 8. Chapter 1, teasing you a little bit. We're going backwards. But you will receive what? 
That ain't good enough. You will receive what? Okay. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my what? Witnesses. And then he goes on to say, basically, all over the world. The word power is the Greek word dunamis. It's where we get the English word dynamite. We get it right from it, okay? So let me paraphrase what Jesus has just promised that we have just seen in chapter two. You will receive dynamite power to be my witnesses. That's what he says. Um, Someone a long time ago started an idea in the church that I don't think is biblical. Not to offend anybody, but I don't think it is. Here's what you've heard, no doubt. Some of you even have said that your salvation is all about a personal relationship with Jesus. That's not in the Bible. Now, again, to clarify so you don't hang me in effigy later, I'm not saying that salvation isn't personal. I am not saying that he doesn't love you or care for you or know you intimately or forgive all your sins. It's personal. Yes, it is personal. But this salvation wasn't meant to be lived in a bedroom. It was not meant for us to go off somewhere and say, man, I'm saved. I'm so happy I'm saved. Where's the motorcycles? What can I do? Go have fun? It's not what it was for. Let me just make it really clear. Dynamite isn't for you. It's for the mission. That's what verse 8 says. It was never meant to give to you to just squander as you wish. It was meant to put you in the context of a body called the church so that you could be a light to the nations. That's what it was for. Gifts, that the Holy Spirit would give us gifts that we would serve each other and equip the body so that it could be a light to the nations, a new community that doesn't happen anywhere else on the planet. They can't see it anywhere else. They look in here and go, what does it mean? You people stay together and you love each other and you forgive each other and you're reconciled to each other. You take care of each other's needs. You're the early church for crying out loud. And when they look in here and see us living out in that spirit, they'll ask the question. This power, this dynamite wasn't given for your personal relationship with Jesus, as personal as it is. It was given for you to go on mission with the rest of us sinners changed by the Spirit of God to become the people of God, shaped in a new way, this new, brand new community that doesn't exist on the planet. Does that make sense? So the convicting part of this whole thing is this reality. How would you describe your faith? Please don't feel judged because I'm not shooting at you necessarily, but I think the church has a sickness if not a bad reputation or both. The church is full of consumers who want goods and services that meet up to their expectations, that is conveniently placed in a place where I can come and get them when I feel good and ready to get them. The temperature is just right. The sound's just right. The music's just right. The preaching's just right. The, the, the bookstore's just right. X, 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 and it goes. I mean, everything's just perfect for me. We're consumers, and we take it and leave it. We come and we go as we want to. No, no commitment. I'm not, I'm not pointing at you, but the church has a sickness. That isn't what Jesus died for. There isn't anything, by the way, about that community that looks different than every other community. If all we do is show up and take. If all we do is get what we want, might as well join a gun club. 
There's no difference. You want, you want the power of God? You want it to break out in your life? You, you want to see what God is doing here? You want to follow and fulfill the very command of Jesus, go and make disciples? Then you understand what you're saved to. You're saved into this. That's why when I tell you I love you, I really love you. And I miss you sometimes because I don't see you all the time. I'd love to see you giving your gifts away in some other place in the church and meeting somebody else's need because when you do that, the church is more equipped to be the light to the world, to be the exceptional community so that they will say, what's different about you? Tell me. And we get to tell them what? Jesus. Does it make sense? Yeah. Nothing... Nothing in the world looks like the church, acts like the church, loves like the church, serves like the church, forgives like the church, has joy like the church, because there's no one like our God. Agreed? Let's ask him to make us that kind of church. Lord, I do ask that you make us a light in this dark world, that where we have made our faith a comfortable um, safe and very private experience. I pray, God, that you make us into your body. I pray, God, that people would experience us and ask the question, what does it mean? I pray that they would look in and see the power of God in this place and be amazed. Not for us, but for your glory on display in this world, we pray. Amen.